Good day. I'm Sharon Pearson, president of Salem City Club. Thanks for joining City Club's first program featuring Chief Womack. We have several programs on the schedule for the next couple of months. On March 19th, we'll hear from Dr. Stephen Thorsett, president of Willamette University, who will talk about the state of higher education on a national and a local level. April programs include presentations from Willamette Riverkeepers and Oregon's new Secretary of State, Shamia Fagan. Visit SalemCityClub.com for more information and to register. Next Wednesday, March 10th, watch the 2021 State of the City Address on CC Media Channel 21, beginning at noon. The program is co-sponsored by Salem City Club, Rotary Club of Salem, and the Salem Chamber of Commerce. Most of our members have continued to support Salem City Club during this odd year of virtual programming. The dues and donations have made a huge difference to our well-being and have ensured that we will survive. Thank you. In addition, City Club would not be able to present programs without the generous support of our supporting business sponsors. They are KMUZ Community Radio, Lou Jean Fobert Graphic Design, Pioneer Trust Bank, Rich Duncan Construction, and Virgil T. Golden Funeral Home. Thank you all for your help with City Club's mission to promote civic discourse and keep the community informed. And now, here is the program lead, George Dyer, who will introduce today's program. Hi, George. Hi, how you doing, Sharon? I'm doing very well. Good. Well, we have an, I think, an exciting program today, and uh, it is uh, a, a great honor to introduce to the Salem City Club uh, our new Chief of Police, Trevor Womack. Um, Chief Womack has had a variety of experiences that has prepared him for the law enforcement positions that uh, he has held. He was born and raised in Stockton, California, uh, into a family of law enforcement officers. Um, he served for 29 years in the Stockton's police department, achieving the rank of deputy police chief for his last eight years before retiring. Chief Womack has also received bachelor and master's degrees in law enforcement, as well as being a graduate uh, from the FBI Academy. Now his urban environment also has added to his list of experiences. For instance, Stockton's population is almost twice as much as it is in Salem. And uh, US News declared Stockton as probably the most diverse city in America. In 2012, Stockton was the largest city in this country to declare bankruptcy. All of those experiences have added to the uh, background that I think would be needed uh, to be a police chief in, in Salem. Now being the lead, I get to ask the first question of Chief Womack. And uh, Chief, former Chief Moore, who was Salem's chief for 15 years said in 2020, said that 2020 was the most difficult year in his professional career. Now that begs the question, why would anyone who could slip into retirement want to lead a police department 
during a time of health, social, and political upheaval. So let us welcome to Salem City Club, Salem's Chief of Police, Trevor Womack. Chief, do you have some answers? Yes. <laughs> Mr. Dyer, for that introduction and that, and that great question. Um, I've always been up for a good challenge. Um, and after spending 29 years in law enforcement in Stockton, uh, I just felt like I wasn't finished yet, anywhere near done yet. It's a profession that I love. And I did have a, a, a unique set of experiences, some lessons learned in Stockton that I feel like I owe back to this profession. And I wanna give that back to this department and this community. And so I wanna spend the rest of my remaining years in law enforcement, the rest of my career, uh, giving back in that way. So that's my, that's my short answer as far as uh, why I still want to work and why I would take this position as Chief of Police during, during admittedly these challenging times. I'm going to share a screen here in a moment so I can start a presentation to walk through with everyone. There we go. Hopefully that's showing okay for everyone. Okay, well, I appreciate the, the uh, opening remarks and the introduction. It touched on some of the things I was going to cover, but I will uh, continue to introduce myself a, a bit more to the community. I've spent the, the first uh, 90 days so far, I think today is exactly my uh, completing my 90 days on the job as Chief of Police here in Salem. And I've spent most of that time just trying to lay the foundation for some trusting relationships and doing that by meeting as many people as I possibly can, listening, learning, observing, and so I see this opportunity today as, as yet another opportunity to do just that, introduce myself to all of you. And so I wanted to mention uh, a little bit about myself, my family. Um, my wife and I are from Stockton, California, and we have together five children. My two biological children are, are a bit older now. My daughter's a police officer as well in California, and she's 27 years old, and my son's 21. And he's out on his own, still going to school. So they're both uh, pretty much grown now, kind of on their own and more independent. And then we also have my stepchildren, uh, a son who's 26 and a daughter who's 21, still in college. And uh, our youngest is 16, still in high school. And that's primarily why my wife is still back in Stockton, California, while I'm up here solo for now, making this transition uh, as we let him finish out his sophomore year in high school and make the decision if he wants to move to Oregon with us or stay back in California with his biological father. Um, so we're in that transition period right now, but we're both very much looking forward to um, becoming part of this community, living here, buying a home here, um, and, and fully becoming part of this community here in Salem. It's exactly where we wanna be. Uh, Education-wise, I think that was already covered, and but I'll, I'll speak a little bit more about my career. After doing 29 years with the Stockton Police Department, my, my father was a police officer too with Stockton, so I knew from the time I was a child, uh, I had that connection to the law enforcement uh, life and interest, and so I knew from the time I was, I, was, I was a child what I wanted to do, and I spent the past 29 years doing exactly that. Um, and with the Stockton Police Department, I worked through all the ranks and all the areas of the department, so I feel like I had a very good, varied set of experiences there. I learned a lot as I grew up in the organization. And as was mentioned, I spent the last eight years as a deputy chief there in Stockton. And that's the number two position just beneath the chief on, on the operations side of the department. 
And we went at, during that time, we went through um, some unique challenges. And these are some of the unique experiences that I want to bring with me into Salem. Um, having led through a municipal bankruptcy, experienced some extreme staffing cuts and uh, doing more with less to the extreme. But the, the good side of that that I learned so much from was rebuilding an organization emerging from, from bankruptcy. So with a police organization, kind of starting with a clean slate and rebuilding the organization in a new way. And I got a lot of insights as we went through that process. And also, um, we did some progressive work in Stockton around community engagement and trust building with our community, especially, as was mentioned, Stockton is a very diverse community. So especially with some of our um, um, diverse communities, our challenged neighborhoods, our disadvantaged neighborhoods, uh, how, how to build trust and bridges with your community and the police. So we did a lot of that work as part of the National Initiative for Building Community Trust and Justice. And that was hands-on work that I was involved in. And so th those unique experiences, I, I feel like I need to give back. And it's work that I believe um, would benefit our entire profession, not just the Salem Police Department. This, it's, it's something our entire profession needs to get involved in or do more of. And so I wanna bring those experiences into Salem, figure out how, uh, how they fit best within this community and apply some of that work here as well. So through those experiences, through those 29 years of law enforcement and, and those unique experiences towards the last uh, eight years there in Stockton, I developed a pretty uh, clear and refined policing philosophy that I'd like to talk about a little bit today. Although I don't know, again, this has only my, been my first 90 days on the job, so I don't have a lot of specific details yet on what might change exactly within the department here. But what I do know is the policing philosophy that I bring with me because it's who I am now as a law enforcement leader, and this is going to be applied here in Salem now that I'm the chief of police here. So in short, to sum it up, my policing philosophy really comes down at the simplest sense to, to fighting crime while building trust. And there, there was a time when those might have been seen as mutually exclusive concepts. Um, and what I mean by that is there's some, some strategies that were used in the, in the past in our history that were more about driving crime rates down. So maybe some suppressive type tactics. And you can effectively reduce crime through suppression. You can effectively lower crime through suppression. But what tends to happen if you take that approach is it also damages and creates harm within the community, especially with the relationship with the police. And so we need to find ways as a profession, and that's what we're gonna do here in Salem, to drive down crime, but simultaneously maintain and build trust with our community. And that's what this policing philosophy is built upon. So the two pillars are smarter policing and principled policing. You can think of smarter policing as the, as the name implies. Uh, we're gonna have some smart approaches towards driving down crime. So we're gonna be a data, make data-driven decisions. We're gonna use evidence-based approaches or research-based approaches wherever we can. Um, and you can think of that kind of, of the what we do and how we're gonna do it side of the philosophy. On the other side, the co-equal pillar there is principled policing. And that's much more about who we are as individuals and as an organization, our character, um, our trustworthiness, our commitment to trust building with our community. So it's much more about the, the why we do what we do. So again, those, this, this philosophy becomes the lens through which we move forward as an organization. And so in the middle here, a few of the areas that, I'm, that we're going to be examining or working on for sure um, is building up our analytical capacity. And even just after the first three months here, I can tell that we need to do some work there. It's going to be a foundational 
component that we need to accomplish before we can do some additional work that we need to do. Um, because in order to have data-driven decisions, you have to have data and you have to be able to analyze it and make sense of it so you can inform your decisions. So we may need to do some work there building our analytical capacity. Also a value that I bring is communication and transparency. And you may have seen some of that work, hopefully, as we dealt with protests. There were a few protests going on when I first arrived. Um, thank goodness for now, they seem to have settled down. Hopefully that continues. But we definitely uh, focused on how to communicate better with our community regarding our approach towards protests. Um, and, and hopefully you saw some of that as well. So that's just one small practical example, but that, that's reflective of my commitment to communicating well and being very transparent with the community. So uh, we're gonna apply that throughout the organization wherever we can. Also here's listed recruiting a qualified and diverse workforce. I see diverse, have, having come from one of the most diverse cities uh, for my entire life, growing up there, going through public school system there, policing in that environment for 29 years, I truly see diversity as a strength within an organization, as a strength within a community. And so we wanna make sure that we're doing all that we can as a department to be reflective of the diverse community that we serve. Uh, trust building and racial reconciliation. There's some of the work that, uh, that I was involved in in the past that I wanna bring into Salem around trust building and racial reconciliation. And then uh, for those of you who may have seen the Breakfast with the Chief event uh, this week also, there was a focus on officer safety and wellness. And I'm going to continue to bring that into the organization as a top priority because I'm a firm believer that if we take care of our of our officers, then that that is reflected back out to the community. So in a sense, when you invest in the wellness of our police officers, you're in, you're actually investing in the wellness of our community as a whole. So that's just a, kind of a sums up my policing philosophy that I've um, developed over the years, and then I bring it with me into Salem. I touched on the analytical capacity piece. And to speak that, to that a little bit more, um, in order to be to make data-driven decisions and have intelligence-led approaches or policing strategies, you have to have uh, robust data, robust technologies, and capacity to analyze and make sense of that data so that you can use it to inform your decisions in all areas of the department. And I mean that even regarding crime, um, but even internally, the way we manage the department and our personnel, internal metrics and data as well. So we're going to make a significant investment in building out our, our analytical capacity so that we can be data-driven and uh, inform our decisions in that way. That smarter policing piece that I touched on. One example would be patrol staffing levels, for example. Uh, one thing I've noticed already just within three months is that the department is stretched pretty thin, uh, and it's, it's actually impressive to me the workload that I can tell that the Salem Police Department has, been, Department has been carrying for a number of years now without adding any additional staff, uh, while that workload has continued to increase. And the quality of work uh, that they've accomplished with this level of staffing is impressive to me, coming in with the outside set of eyes. There's also a community policing audit that we're going to hear about soon, and I think, um, I think that additional outside set of eyes is going to provide some insights into our staffing levels as well. But if we're talking about staffing levels, you need to have good data to understand are our staffing levels appropriate? Is our organizational structure aligned appropriately? And so this is just one practical example of how we want to use data internally to inform those decisions about how we deploy our staff. Looking out onto the horizon a bit, and what a beautiful horizon. <laughs> I love uh, this community, I love the landscape. 
I love the, the where it's situated between the coast and the mountains. That's one of the reasons that I'm excited to be here, actually. Um, looking out on the horizon, as I think about where are we headed as an organization now, my approach has been to, as I mentioned earlier, spend the first few months investing in building trusting relationships. And I've been doing that a, lot, a lot of that work. Now I'm transitioning more into a phase of, of assessment, assessment of the organization. Things like our hiring, training, recruiting strategies, our patrol staffing deployment, our policies and procedures, um, how we operate as an organization. So we're gonna spend several months now conducting an in-depth assessment, and that's gonna be supported by the community policing audit that I mentioned also, so that we can, we can determine internally what are the things that the Salem Police Department are doing exceedingly well that we wanna make sure we continue to do or even build upon? What are those things that perhaps uh, we could do a little better, we need to improve upon, and maybe there's some things that we've been doing as an organization that we just wanna stop doing altogether. And so that's what I wanna gain out of this assessment phase of the organization. And then we're gonna move more into a strategic planning piece that, that I'll touch on uh, as well. But I'm also looking forward to getting back into the community in the sense, in the, in the literal sense, as far as shaking off the binds of this pandemic that have been restricting us and limiting our face-to-face -face interactions and our ability to communicate with and contact our community as we should to build relationships. And so I can't wait to even open up this new facility that I'm sitting in today, uh, thanks to the community for providing that new facility. And we can't wait as an organization to invite folks inside to this beautiful new building, which is your facility, and share that space as we do work together. And that leads us more into in-depth trust building work as well, when we can, when we can have one-on-one -on -one meetings again or group settings together, and we can be begin to have some of those uh, new in-depth conversations about our community and our trust between the police and the community. I'm looking forward to doing more of that work as well. And I touched on the performance audit. Um, we'll, we'll see the recommendations and findings from that soon, I believe. And I don't think there's gonna be many surprises in that audit from my perspective. I view that as just another set of outside eyes taking a look at our organization. And, and as an organization, we appreciate that. We want to always be improving and working to improve ourselves and striving for excellence. And so we're going to embrace the recommendations within this performance audit, and we're going to work hard to make sure that uh, we improve wherever we need to and that we implement as, as best we can all of the recommendations within that performance audit. And I think they're going to be well aligned with some of the things I've been talking about already as far as the policing philosophy that I mentioned and our commitment to community trust building. I think it'll all be well aligned. This ultimately leads us to uh, the strategic plan that we're going to be working on as a department. And I'm envisioning the, the second half of this year really being focused on the development of a high quality strategic plan. And I went one slide too fast. <laughs> Let me touch a little bit more on the strategic plan. Um, I see the strategic plan as an extremely valuable tool for any organization, but especially for the Salem Police Department, because we are going to go through a process and I believe process matters so much. Sometimes process is even more important than, than the actual outcome. Um, and so we're gonna go through a process of developing our strategic plan that includes a lot of input um, and work up and down the ranks within the organization, and also a lot of input and feedback from our community as we develop this plan. Taking into account the policing philosophy that I mentioned, 
the findings and, and recommendations from the performance audit that are coming and build that all into a strategic plan that creates very very clear goals, overarching goals for our organization, but then more importantly, very specific objectives to achieve those goals. And then even beyond that, metrics to measure ourselves as far as how what progress we're making. And we're going to use that document. I, I, I see us having that in place by January of next year so that we can launch off into the next few years using that strategic plan um, as a management docu for, document for organization to hold, our, hold ourselves accountable, but also to remind us of, of what our new shared vision is as we, as we move forward as an organization. So I see that as a, a critical process that we're going to be going through as an organization for that outcome in the end, which is the work product that will be available to us as a management tool in January of next year. So with that, I went through that fairly quickly. Um, but at this point, I'd be happy to take any questions. I'd love to have conversational uh, type questions rather than just giving a presentation. So this is the part of the, of the presentation I'd be looking forward to, is hearing questions from the group. So I'm going to stop sharing my screen here. Hello there. Uh, I'm Hans West, as I think most of you know. And I'll be doing the question and answer session here. So um, as most of you know, there's two ways to ask a question here. You can click on the question and answer icon and click and fill it out and then enter it. And I will see that it will, it will, uh, we'll keep an eye on that. And you can also raise your hand and uh, that will be done in chronological order. So if you raise your hand quicker than anybody else, you're in front of the line. And um, when I call on somebody, then a, a microphone icon will appear on the lower side of your screen and that will have a line through it. So you need to click on that to unmute and then you can ask your question. So uh, please folks, you get them in. Uh, and I think we went into questions a little earlier than usual. So uh, I don't see any quite yet. Um, I don't see any yet. So let me start with a question here that I have on hand. Um, well, Chief, this is, a, I, I'll just go ahead and ask it. There have been, has been a lot of open carry of weapons here in town, especially with demonstrations and especially from uh, Proud Boys and so on. And to the extent that they were down in the Bush Park carrying weapons, and it, it was rather a tense situation because I think people feel very intimidated. And it, do you see any lessons learned or ways we can begin to address that issue? Because I don't think, people carrying guns makes for an equal, you know, equal conversation or, or, or any way to really have a good conversation uh, between people, uh, who, those who do and those who don't. So if you have an answer of some kind, I'd appreciate it. Yes, I think that uh, obviously there's, there's um, some legislative things that may need to occur or options there that are outside of our control at the local level, definitely outside of my control. But when it comes to, um, protests in general, you know, it does increase tensions if there's arms in the armed individuals involved. So we want to work hard to limit that as much as possible. But it places us in a position, and I think it's important to touch on maybe my overarching approach towards managing protests uh, in the first place. And I think that it's important for law enforcement. We often get placed in a position where we are um, sometimes between two competing interests, 
important competing interests during protests where on one side you have constitutional rights of individuals, right, to, to peaceably assemble, to freely express themselves, and that, including uh, the Second Amendment is, is a constitutional right. On the other side of the equation, sometimes we have um, public safety interests that need to be represented. We need to make sure that no one's being harmed physically. We need to make sure no serious vandalism or property damage is occurring. And sometimes those come to a head during protests and the police are right there in the middle trying to protect public safety while also protecting the interests of folks' constitutional rights. And, and that's exactly where we need to stay, is right there in the middle, constantly balancing those interests. And I think that um, at times there, there can be perceptions that law enforcement is moving one, day, one direction or the other with, with a certain group, for example, because of a specific ideology that's being expressed. But that's actually not the case. Law enforcement needs to stay neutral right in the middle, balancing those interests. So regardless of any ideology that's being expressed um, or any political motivations of any group on either side of this equation during a protest or a confrontational protest, it's our job as law enforcement to stay neutral in the middle and stay focused on any criminal behaviors that may be occurring and address those as best we can while, while also facilitating or allowing folks to express themselves and peaceably assemble. So, so that's our general approach. And as I, as I arrived in the first uh, month, really, there was some pretty intense protests happening in here. We're a capital city, that's what's, what's drawing folks in. And some folks with some pretty diametrically opposed ideologies were coming into conflict with one another. And we really needed to make sure we were communicating well with our community as far as our approach, kind of like I just described. And so some of the work, for example, towards Mahonia Hall or Bush Pasture, Pastor Park, I heard from the community exactly what you were touching upon there, sir, about the, the concerns, the feelings of fear because folks are armed um, and it's, it's a scary situation to be in. And so we invested a lot of new time and effort in communicating well with the community there. We even uh, walked to the neighborhood and made contact with folks door to door and, and provided some information and explained what our approach was going to be. Um, let folks know up front when we anticipated a protest and maybe what to expect from from law enforcement in our response. And that seemed to help a lot as far as getting understanding from the community as to um, how the police will be responding to those incidents as they occur. Uh, let me add a question uh, that somewhat adds to what you just said. Uh, Jan Margosian is asking, well, here, let me, let me read it. Uh, Chief Womack, in light of recent events at state capitol buildings throughout the US, has Salem police trained to assist Oregon State Police in case of an insurrection at the Salem Capitol's building. Yes, uh, we're, we're close partners with uh, Oregon State Police. And uh, there's a continual, as everyone knows, on the Capitol grounds inside the building, the Capitol grounds is OSP's jurisdiction, not ours. But a lot of times when there's protests or gatherings there, they tend to spill over sometimes and impact our community within our jurisdiction as well. So that, that just demands that we work very closely together and stay coordinated. Um, as one example there, during the, the larger protests that happened in the Capitol uh, leading up to January 1st, um, we created a joint command post here within our building. Uh, OSP had their command post as well, but we had people from each side in each other's command posts and we were coordinating in real time as we managed and responded to those protests. So that's the type of work that we do together with, with OSP. Thank you. Um, next, we'll go to a hand raise, Delana. Uh, please ask your question. Um, hopefully you have a little microphone icon there. Okay. There we are. Actually, this is Russ Beaton, Delana and my wife is uh, last labeled 
the thing. Um, thanks for being here, Trevor, and welcome to Salem. Um, I'm I'm um, dismayed by the omnibus implications of the defund the police type phrase that you hear everywhere. Um, but I I would say that looking at what the, the the complex jobs that the police are asked to do these days, do you see any possibility of sort of a two-track training where where uh, we're always going to have crime, we're always going to have uh, the, the need to be able to respond to it, no matter what. But one thing I hear the police say is that we get into very complex community things with mental health issues and uh, neighborhood issues and all kinds of stuff that we're, we're really not technically trained to do. Uh, I, I wouldn't mind seeing a, a sort of a two-track training thing where the, the less militarized part is more trained in uh, almost as counselors. We'd have something like the British bobbies on the street or something. Uh, do you see any hope for anything of that nature? Thank you for that question. Uh, that's that's a, a definite challenge that we're in now. And, and you, you see it played out on the streets every day, folks, experiencing um, homelessness, correct? And a lot of times there's they're also um, suffering from addiction or or um, behavioral health issues that are contributing to these problems. And then sometimes around homelessness, homelessness itself is not a crime, of course, but then there are some criminal behaviors that tend to be associated with those issues also that draw the police in. And as I've said many times before, and I don't mean it to be cliche, but there, the problem as I see it is there is no single agency to end homelessness, for example. And so who do folks call when there's a problem? They call the police and then we get drawn into these situations. And so exactly to your point, uh, we need to find ways to remove the police from those situations where we don't need to be as much as possible. I think there's always gonna be some safety concerns. There's always gonna be need for the police involvement. The police need to be a key stakeholder at any sort of collaborative table to solve these social ills, but the police definitely cannot continue to be the first, the only first responder. And so when we talk about programs like, like in Eugene, CAHOOTS, for example, or the behavioral health unit that we already have here, where we have a police officer partnered with uh, behavioral health professionals, um, who can respond to situations where perhaps the police don't need to be involved alone and we need some expertise with us, or the LEAD program, which is Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion, which we have here as well in partnership with Marion County, where we try to deflect folks from the criminal justice system at the initial contact level before an arrest even occurs. Those are the type of strategies that we need to continue to expand. That, that's exactly what's needed to try to remove police from those situations where they don't necessarily need to be and don't have the expertise. And so as a law enforcement leader at this executive level, I see that as my role is to try to find ways to bring the right players to the table, including myself, um, and do a lot of cross boundary collaboration to work on those deeper social complex ills that we get pulled into. Um, so more specific to your question about some, some co-training in that area, agree, agree. So in addition to just trying to remove ourselves from the equation as much as possible, when we are involved, we need to make sure that we're properly trained to handle the situation correctly. And, and we do a lot of that training. I mean, maybe the community doesn't realize, but we do a lot of crisis intervention training or de-escalation training currently, and we're going to continue to build upon that as we improve our ability to, to for example, to recognize a behavioral health issue versus a threat or a crime. Um, we need to make sure that we're training our proper officers properly to, to make those decisions real time in the field. 
thank you, Chief. And there's a sort of a, there's a follow-up question on that here, uh, asking you to describe um, a vision or operational plan for addressing um, the issue of homeless people on the sidewalks and in the parks and camping and how to balance all that with the broader community use, yeah. Very complex. That's why we don't see a solution right now. It's, it's an extremely complex, difficult situation. And it's only been um, compounded by uh, the pandemic that we're in. So for example, uh, methods that we may have used recently as a year ago, as far as helping to move folks along or help to clean areas is more difficult now because of the pandemic where folks are need to stay sheltered in place more to prevent the spread of COVID. And so it's even hampered our abilities to, to address some of the issues and concerns. But, but regardless of the, the pandemic, as I mentioned, it's not a crime to be homeless, of course. Um, there are often smaller, low-level crimes associated with that. For example, people who are sleeping or camping on a street may technically be in violation of an ordinance or a very low-level crime. Um, but is the right approach to enforce that low-level crime when someone is deep in addiction or a behavioral health issue that's the real cause of the situation they're in and just you know make the situation worse by adding the criminal justice system into the equation and so it's just such a complicated situation to try to balance and navigate and i think that's why we really need a, that multidisciplinary approach so that any strategy has multiple stakeholders involved so the right folks can be there uh, one challenge we have here in salem specifically if you want to have a practical example would be that we we don't have a sobering center for example here so even when, a, when our police officers respond to some of these situations or if we had the cahoots model and they were to respond to the situation there's still the issue of where can folks go for help and and one re very practical way that could be helpful would be to have a sobering center so that folks are um, inebriated or under the influence of drugs could have a safe place to go to get off of the streets and begin that process of healing or connection with other social service providers. That, that gap exists here in our community, which makes it even more difficult for the first responder, whether it's police, fire, or a medic, or a cahoots uh, behavioral health specialist out there on the street to, to help facilitate getting people off the streets when that, when that gap is there as far as where can they even go. Thank you. Uh, next, we'll have Brian Hines uh, pose a question. Brian? Uh, yes, uh, Chief Womack, uh, good to see you. Enjoyed your, your presentation. Um, this is maybe related to, or is related to Russ's uh, question. What I found most interesting uh, in looking at, at the state of, of policing is the steady and uh, rather you know, marked decline in, in crime rates across the country and in Salem, in Oregon, uh, property crimes uh, certainly, but also violent crimes have, have gone down also. And, and so in, in most fields, if you see a, a, a drop in demand, so to speak, for your services, you would think that you would need fewer resources. But it seems that in, in policing, um, at least explicitly, that, that doesn't happen, that most departments, you know, naturally uh, want more money, more resources. But I'm just wondering if, if you could speak a bit about how, how the decline in crime, uh, you know, maybe speaks to the need to as Russ was alluding to, and as you have also, to expanding the vision of the police into prevention, into community policing, into dealing with non-crime social problems.
problems because most people, maybe because of TV, think of crime as, you know, 911, people rushing off to a murder. And, and that's becoming less and less uh, common, if I have that correct. I think if you look at national trends, you might see some reductions there, especially if you step back over periods of decades, you're going to see a downward trend in crime. Um, and there was a significant drop off at the beginning of the pandemic across the board as well. But that's that that has since changed. Violent crime is now increasing as well. Here in Salem, our shootings have definitely been up. Um, and so so there's still a significant problem with violent crime in our community that we're facing. A lot of it goes unseen by this community. Um, part of the transparent Oops, excuse me, the transparency and communication that I mentioned earlier, um, I think we can do better at sharing the type of crime that we're facing here in, in Salem and what our officers are actually dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, but one point that comes to mind for me as you spoke also is that um, that indicates to me also, is if I would say that the, tr the trust or legitimacy of our profession as a whole has gone down. Maybe people can agree with that. Uh, if you look at the uh, symptoms of protests and so forth, uh, there's a challenge with community trust in the police right now, even though there's been decades of reduction of crime. So what that tells me as a law enforcement leader is that maybe just driving down crime should not be my primary focus because if the goal is to increase trust and legitimacy with your community, I don't think crime level necessarily impacts that. It's much more about the principal policing side of the equation. It's much more about why we do what we do, how we interact with our community. Are we listening and giving people a voice? Are we treating people with dignity and respect? Are we acting in trustworthy ways? Should we be focusing on the process of how we do our job more than just the outcome that we're after? So that, that's what it makes me think about too, as you spoke, is that crime rates are definitely not tied to legitimacy of a police agency. Hopefully, I, I spoke a little bit in generalities there. Hopefully, I got no, that's great. <laughs> okay, uh, thank you. And next, Karen Garcia has a question here. Your experience serving in a diverse community is needed here in Salem. All members of this community need to be heard, and some do not seem to have much of a voice. Please share your approach to engaging these neighborhoods and encouraging everyone to speak up and ensure equality for all. Thank you for that question. I think there's a lot of... Um, what could be thought of more traditional community policing type trust building work that we need to we need to continue to do and get back to and some of that has suffered because of the pandemic again we've had to retract from our engagement with the community in that way and and we're going to re-engage in that as soon as we possibly can um, but i think we need to go deeper than that and i think when it comes specifically to folks who feel disenfranchised and feel that they don't have a voice with the police we need to be very responsive to that and take that seriously. And so we need to take the first step as law enforcement into that environment, into those courageous conversations that need to occur. And then we need to do a lot of listening. And so for me, what that might look like, and I'm gonna talk a little bit about my past experiences uh, from my previous agency, what that might look like is creating a space for um, members of, of diverse communities to have one-on-one -on -one interaction with the, with the police chief, one-on-one -on -one interaction, and more of a listening session though. This would not be me doing the talking, this would be me doing the listening. And I'm talking about very small group settings, either one-on-one -on -one meetings or groups of only three to five people to where I could actually listen and actively listen 
and hear the perspectives of folks about their views on policing in general and their views on perhaps past interactions with the Salem Police Department. And after a series of those type of listening sections or meetings, I think some themes would emerge. Themes, uh, I'm not sure, but maybe around the way folks feel that they're treated during a traffic stop, for example, or the way folks feel um, when a search of their home or their car occurs. There, there's going to be different themes that emerge from those conversations. We want to capture those themes. And then we want to internally take a look at a serious look at based on those themes and those perceptions that we heard, how should that influence our policy procedure practice and training and use and make those changes where they make sense and where we can and then explain that back to the community. We heard this, we changed this and now here's what we're doing and then start the cycle all over again. That, that's a continuous cycle that will be never ending. This trust building work never ends. There is no end. It's a continual cycle that needs to occur. And so perhaps that's a framework that we could use here in Salem to, to take kind of a deeper level community engagement that needs to occur to rebuild legitimacy and trust in the communities. Frankly, there are often communities that need us the most, but trust us the least. These are communities where violent crimes occurring. These are communities where serious crime and danger exists and the police are needed in that environment to keep people safe. But we have to work on the trust issues there as well. Thank you. Uh, Rich Duncan has a question. Uh, how do you think Salem will fare by the effects of closing some Oregon jails and the decriminalization of drug use and, and possession? Yes, so I can't predict the future completely. Um, but what I can do also is draw again about some, some experiences from California. California is going through a lot of reforms as well with the criminal justice system and a lot of uh, reduction of the inmate population back out into community supervision, which is happening here in Oregon as well. And we'll have to see what the, how the data plays out. But from my own limited experience in the agency where I worked, for example, we didn't see dramatic increases in crime um, just because there was more community supervision happening, happening in our community. But at the same time, I think the community supervision aspect, in other words, if folks aren't going to be incarcerated and instead they're going to be um, managed through programming in a local community, for example, that needs to be very well uh, thought out, high quality programming backed by adequate resources and social services to make it effective. You can't just take from one system and put them into another system that doesn't exist or that isn't capable or doesn't have capacity. Um, and so it just, need, we just needs, needs to be a very thoughtful approach to where those transitions happen. Um, and so we'll see how this plays out. I'm, I'm, uh, I have some concerns and questions, but that I, I'm also optimistic. And we'll see, we should base our decisions as a, as a system on what's effective and what the data tells us works. Thank you. Uh, Judy Morris has a question, and I think you addressed uh, a fair amount of this, but uh, let's see if you can add anything to it. Are there any training programs and ideas uh, you will bring to, the, uh, to our current police force, and what outcome from those trainings are you looking forward to? And, and I would add on that one, uh, this is me speaking, did you learn any, uh, is there any big idea from, well, that you learned, big thing that you learned down there in Stockton that you would really like to try up here in Salem. One that really sticks, you know, high up there on the list. Yes, and it's, uh, so Salem PD 
does excellent training. I, I can tell already that if we train here at Salem more than is required by the state, more than I was used to um, from my former agency, um, when it comes to officer safety and our interactions with the community, with de-escalation training, with crisis intervention training, there's a lot of good quality training going on. But what I think I bring to the table or what I'd like to introduce on top of that training, um, and it's not an indictment of, of Salem PD at all when I say this, it's not that um, there's a, there's, they've been lacking training, it's to the contrary. I think there's some additional training I'd like to bring into the mix. And it speaks much more to this trust building, community engagement, uh, racial healing type work that I was talking about that we can introduce into the organization on top of all the other good quality training that's going on. Um, and so that might, that might include things like concepts around procedural justice, um, implicit bias and that racial reconciliation framework that I mentioned. I see us uh, looking out into the future, three, four, five years from now, I see us working through training to the point where we can include the community into some of those conversations and training inside this department with our officers and line level staff. Um, and that's, that's what I vision and want to work towards. Um, another question. Um... How do we plan to get diversity in the Salem Police Department? And I say that in the context of it, it's, it's my understanding, it's not always easy to get um, minorities or people of color to agree to be a police person because they see, they get negative pressures from both sides at, at times. Um, so how do we tackle, begin to tackle that? Agree, and it's a, it's a diversity, as I mentioned, is a value of mine. I want to build that into our strategic plan that I talked about. So it becomes a focus of the entire organization. But to your point, it is an extremely challenging thing to accomplish. It really is. And so we can't ignore that reality. It's going to take a lot of hard work. Um, I always view the recruiting, especially diversity recruiting, kind of in two, I don't want to oversimplify it, but in two parts. You have maybe some short-term strategies that we can work on. Maybe there are some sort of incentives. First of all, we gotta make sure there's no barriers within our processes, of course. So there's some short-term short, short things we need to do. If uh, we need to interact with our community locally here to try to incentivize and encourage folks from diverse communities to wanna be police officers. More long-term, uh, we need to create kind of a career pipeline, which is very well thought out, and, but it's gonna be a long-term result that's gonna occur. So maybe it starts even in the schools with our youth at a very young age in the families and work towards building uh, a desire and interest and qualifications to become a public servant, not just a police officer, but a public servant. And so we need to build a, a plan that's very well thought out that includes both short-term strategies, but then a long-term strategy as well and continue to work on that. I know that's, that's pretty general, um, but we wanna, we wanna work to make sure that our department is reflective of our, of our community as we possibly can. And our numbers aren't there, but that's not unique to Salem. That's actually a challenge. Uh, almost every department across the nation faces the same challenge. And one of the realities there is for, let's just speak to African-American officers specifically, even though it's broader than that. Uh, our African-American population is relatively small here in Salem. And in order to get the number of officers that we would need to be well reflective of our community, you actually have to have an overabundance of applicants, an overabundance of African-American applicants, because whether, whether you're white or brown or black or whatever, whatever your ethnic or racial background is, um, not everybody can make it through the process. 
And so there's certain qualifications and trainings that you have to meet. And so in order to raise the number of African-Americans we have, we have to have an overabundance of African-American applicants, which makes it even more difficult. And so we need to invest extra effort in reaching out to those communities that we need and want to be included in our organization and invest time and resources and effort in increasing the number of applications we get from those specific demographics. Okay. Um, Judy Morris has an additional question, and you may have sort of answered this. In terms of crime, what do you see as Salem's most pressing problem? Drugs, gangs, guns, one-to-one, -one, I'm not quite sure what that means, and or property crimes, or none of the above. It's kind of all of the above, but you've asked me to say what the most important one is. Um, and the, to me, the common denominator is 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 violent crime, which to me, a lot of times that translates into shootings or violent crime of that nature. And so sometimes when we talk about drugs or gangs or these other topics, it's, it's actually more about the violent crime that's occurring than it is the gang or the drugs, for example. So if, for me, our priority as an organization will always be the violent crime first. And whatever we, and, and if we're, if we have that analytical capacity that I talked about, we'll have a much better understanding of what's causing those violent crimes to occur. It could be driven by drug dealing or drug activity. It could be dri driven by gang activity. It could be driven by domestic violence that's occurring. If you focus on the violent crime and then you dive deeply into the data and analysis to understand what's driving the violent crime, then you can work on those underlying conditions that are that are creating the violent crime. So for me, violent crime first, especially you know people being injured or hurt, and then going down from there, property crime. I think serious more serious property crime would be break-ins into people's homes for example <laughs> that's there's definitely a, a range of property crime there as well so we want to make sure we're focusing on violent crime but then also the more serious property crimes also and being data driven and evidence approach and intelligence led as far as how we approach reducing those crimes and don't forget uh, the lens that we're going to be using is both smart strategies being data-driven and, and, and intelligence-led with our strategies, but also doing the trust-building work at the same time. Okay, well, uh, Les Margosian, and I think we have about five more minutes for questions. So uh, folks, there's, I think, time for, in addition to this question, uh, for maybe one or two more that I don't see. So uh, Chief Womack, over the last year or two, Salem has had several visitors from anarchists and other far-right groups. Has the Salem Police Department made attempts to gather information on these individuals, such as names, police records, license plate numbers, photos? Is that something that police do in conjunction with, say, the state police or something like that? And I'm sorry, the, the groups you, you mentioned, the some specific groups? Um, well, uh, let's see. Um, do, 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 where was it? Well, it disappeared here just a second. I think if we're talking uh, about the, some of the protest activity that's drawn groups. Yeah, in, the protest, far right and even far left groups, you know, typically. Yes, we definitely share information with other agencies. We have to be careful about um, intelligence data, right? I mean, we, the law enforcement in general, we don't, uh, you know, focus on people and gather intelligence just because of their political affiliation, for example. Of course, that would be unconstitutional for us to do that. But when, when a group or an individual is associated with criminal behaviors, then yes, there's definitely criminal intelligence that we work on and share information with our partners all the way from the local level here to the county level with our county partners and then all the way up to the federal, state and federal partners as well. So um, we do have a pretty 
robust information sharing network to try to make sure we're identifying those folks that are um, committing criminal behaviors that put our community in danger. Okay, one more question here from Judy Morris. Does Salem Police Department currently make recruitment presentations in the high schools? Um, yes, now I haven't been personally exposed to that yet in my first 90 days, and we've been removed a lot from the high schools because of COVID. Um, but yes, that's definitely part of our strategy. And as soon as we can do more of that again, of course we will. I think um, opportunities with schools, our, our police school partnership is critical on so many different levels. We talked about diversity recruiting. We talked about um, the, the perception of law enforcement, our trust building with our community. I think youth and schools provides a unique opportunity for um, building that career pipeline that I talked about and also um, connecting with youth and their families around uh, the, the community engagement that needs to occur with the police and the community. So a partnership with school around those issues is critical and, and so, but to your point, yes, we definitely do recruiting efforts in the schools. So apparently Zoom recruiting hasn't taken off yet. Huh? <laughs> We've been doing as many Zoom meetings as we possibly can. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Chief. Uh, I think this was all very informative and there's lots of it too. So uh, we really appreciate this, your appearance here and your ability to answer questions. Well, thank you. Uh, in great detail. Really appreciate the opportunity. I had fun. Um, and so I really do look forward to the, the ability to meet all of you in person at some point and, and really get to know people better. But thank you again for the opportunity. Thank you. So now back to Sharon and she will close out the program. Oh, that's excellent. Thank you very much, Chief Womack. Welcome to Salem. This concludes our 11th program for the 2021 season. The program committee has done a fabulous job adapting to a virtual format. It hasn't been easy, but they've worked at it, and we've had a wonderful collection of interesting programs this year. Please give them a round of applause. Well, maybe we'll hear applause next year. Remember to watch the 2021 State of the City Address on CC Media Channel One, uh, 21 beginning at noon next Wednesday, March 10th. And also we hope you'll join us on March 19th to hear from Willamette University President, Dr. Stephen Thorson. Visit SalemCityClub.com for more details and thank you for attending today. <laughs>